There are two dilemmas that rattle the human skull. How do you hold on to someone who won't stay? And how do you get rid of someone who won't go? From Pod 617 Productions, it's Shine On, a presentation of Berkman, Botker, Newman, and Shine. Now here's your host, attorney Evan Shine. Episode 9 of the Shine On Podcast, I'm Evan Shine. As always, David Yaz, the executive producer of the Shine On Podcast, is with us. David, how are you? Terrific, terrific. Not looking forward to your guest because it's going to be three New York guys against one boss, one lonely Boston guy over here. So that's a teaser, everyone. But I'll manage. Dave, by the end of the, by the end of this episode, <laughs> I, I think we might convert you from a Red Sox fan <laughs> to a Yankees fan. Is that? I mean, I, I you know, I'm not going to tell anyone, but I think there is a possibility that happens on the Shino podcast. Well, you know, we have the best outfield in baseball. There's Mookie Bell that we lost. Uh, there's Ben and Tao. There's uh, Jackie Bradley. Oh. The entire outfield that won the last World Series we were in is gone. They're all gone. So maybe you're, maybe I will. Maybe I'll come over to the dark side. There we go. I think the fans in Boston would uh, would forgive you. But Dave, I got to tell you, <laughs> yeah. we have a really great episode today. A fantastic docket segment, as we have on each and every episode of the Shine On podcast, where we talk about what's happening in the world of marriage, money, divorce, pop culture, and so much more. And Dave, when the Shine On Podcast listeners speak, we deliver. And there was an email that came into the Shine On Podcast inbox, which is shineonpodcast at gmail.com. Dave, I'm going to turn to you and ask you to read it. Sure. Before I do, just encourage everyone to use that email address provided by Evan and write into the show. And we appreciate when you write in. We appreciate when you subscribe. The The numbers are very strong for this podcast. We're encouraged. So if you do like this podcast, and we know many of you do, please share it with a friend or a colleague or what have you. Here's the email. It's a question from MJ in Connecticut, and it reads as follows. My husband and I are going through a high-conflict divorce for about a year. and We finally reached the terms of a settlement in March of 2020. And then COVID-19 came, and then my husband's business closed, and then our divorce was put on hold, and our life was in limbo. He owns a very successful business, a restaurant. Months into the pandemic, the restaurant, as many restaurants did, closed. We tried to mediate since the courts were closed for some time. That did not work. The biggest sticking point now continues to be the valuation of the husband's business and what value to use. One year later, the divorce is still not finalized. The business may reopen as we hopefully get on the other side of the pandemic. I would imagine there are so many people dealing with a divorce that was supposed to settle and then it didn't because it involved a business. So MJ seeks your advice. And I think MJ is right in that this must be a very common issue going on right now. Dave, MJ is onto something. She's absolutely right. And MJ first, thanks for your question. And look, you're not alone. This was a common issue in many of my divorce cases in New York, cases that were on the verge of settling right around when the pandemic hit, and also with new divorce cases that were filed during the pandemic and 2020. And the question is, how do you value a business? How do you look at a business or company in one of the most unprecedented and unpredictable times ever? And what happens to the evaluations that were performed pre-COVID? for businesses and a value that was put on these businesses for purposes of negotiating and coming to an agreement on the terms to settle a divorce. But then before an agreement was signed, the business shut down, temporarily closed, or 
income was drastically reduced because of the pandemic? We're going to get the answers to this question and much more on this episode of the Shine On Podcast as we talk to New York and Connecticut business evaluator and forensic accountant Glenn Liebman and Connecticut family law attorney Peter Berniska. That's right. Coming up on the other side of the docket, we're going to have both Glenn and Peter on together as our featured guest this week on episode nine of the Shine On podcast to help answer MJ from Connecticut's question and something that I know as a divorce attorney in New York is on the minds of so many people thinking about divorce or who are in the middle of a divorce right now where there's a business involved. This is an interview that you will not want to miss. All right, as we do each week, Counselor, it is time. Are you ready for the docket, my friend? Dave, I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. And now, let's see what's on the docket. As we do here, reviewing the news in family law, as it were, and things going on in pop culture. The first one, Evan, comes from Psychology Today. It's an article called Financial Strain and Relationship Health. And it poses some interesting questions. The article reads, money is a difficult topic of conversation to broach for many couples. It involves talking about how much each person earns, the desire to combine resources, or keep them separate. And in a divorce, it reads, is an important discussion to have as finances affect the overall satisfaction derived from a relationship and have the potential to affect us at all stages of our union. So, and then it goes through some details here, but needless to say, a, a heavy topic. Dave, it's a great article and an important one. And look, in my experience as a divorce attorney, money definitely impacts a relationship. And the money conversation at any point before people get married or when a couple is married, it's not easy. And look, having a conversation, whether it's about a prenuptial agreement or money or finances, in the early stages of dating, whether you're engaged and you're about to get married, it's hard. But do you think it becomes easier if you wait? It never does. Absolutely not. And look, I've never had a client come into my office, sit across from me and say, Evan, my spouse and I are open and honest about money and everything else too. And oh, by the way, I want to get divorced. That's not the conversation. It's the lack of transparency. It's when someone comes in and sits across and says, Evan, there's a lack of transparency in my relationship. The fact that someone feels in the dark about money and about finances, or there was never a discussion about expectations, and there was a total lack of communication, and this is after 10 or 15 or so years. And look, people break up for all sorts of reasons. It's not just financial hardship, but I'll tell you this, have the conversation, discuss assets, debts, and really consider if having a prenuptial agreement makes sense because not only may it make all the sense in the world and be appropriate and necessary to protect certain assets and businesses, but it will be a strength-building moment and conversation if you have it early in the relationship. And the other thing I want to say about the article is having all the money in the world, it doesn't equate, it doesn't mean happiness. I have divorced and represented some of the wealthiest people in New York City and people with extraordinary amounts of money and wealth. Now, let me break the news here on the Shine Up podcast. They too have relationship and marital problems. But for me, and what I've seen in my experience, it's not about the amount of money, but it's about the conversation that either takes place 
or doesn't take place. And again, it's incredibly important to have that conversation early in a relationship. Yeah, it's, it's a conversation you should probably have no matter whether you end up doing a prenup or not. So why not have the conversation? Because I think what leads to a lot of strife in relationships is lack of communication, right? And so you're just kind of going along thinking this this will probably take care of itself. And in fact, a, a short conversation will probably do a lot towards relieving some pain in the future. Dave, you're spot on. And I'll tell you what, it's not just about money. Have a conversation about life, about children, about where you want to live. I see so many people who don't have those conversations. And look, as a divorce attorney, I I get an inside look into people's lives. And people come into my office and they sit here or they have a phone conversation with me. And someone will say, Evan, I didn't know my husband wants to live in California. I didn't know my (laughs) husband didn't want to have children. And my response, and I'm thinking to myself, did you have conversations? Did you talk? Did you discuss? I would think some of the most important topics you could discuss when you're in a relationship. And you're right. It's about communication. And so many people just don't have communication. Yeah. Yeah. And potentially tragic results. So good thoughts for sure. The next article comes from a website called Aussie.com. That's O-Z-Y.com. Wasn't familiar with it, but very thoughtful article written by Nick Forizos. And the title reads, Should You Get Divorced? Because It's Not Always Such a Bad Thing. And what's interesting about this piece is he, he picks apart divorce. He says, welcome to the science of divorce, and picks apart elements like the COVID pause, taking a long view, should you break up for the kids, and one that I thought was particularly interesting, Evan, changing perceptions. He's got a stat in here that even as the U.S. divorce rate dropped to new lows, the proportion of Americans who think divorce is morally acceptable rose to a record high 77% in 2019. That's a little surprising to me and you know, speaks to the stigma of divorce, which is perhaps one of the, the fears that drive a lot of people from taking the leap and having that first difficult conversation. What do you think? Dave, i got to tell you, it's, it's an insightful article, and the article's filled with some absolutely fantastic nuggets. And it's like we're sharing a brain here on the Shine Up Podcast, because I'm going to talk about the perception of divorce and, and one of the points in the article. And, you know, there's two points from the article that I do want to talk about. And one is the statistic that says Americans who believe in divorce is morally acceptable. That rose to a record high of 77% in 2019. And the article goes on to compare and contrast with the statistics in other countries, India, China, Mexico, that are drastically low when it comes to divorce rates. And the article suggests that divorce is still taboo in these countries. Mm. And I want to talk about this because the fact that the perception of divorce has changed and is changing and people want more, people want happiness, people want to find love, people want to be in healthy emotionally healthy and physically healthy relationships. Let's applaud that. It's an absolutely wonderful thing. And we've talked about before on the Shine Up podcast with our incredible lineup of guests and experts about happiness after divorce and finding love again and dating and healing and finding, you know, real meaningful happiness and being a better co-parent on the other side of a breakup and split. And it exists. And I see it as a divorce attorney with my own clients. And divorce is incredibly painful, but there are so many wonderful resources to help people get through it. And 
The other part that I do want to mention about the article is the article goes on to talk about breaking up for kids and what's the right age and the impact. And I see it with my clients. People stay in relationships for a lot of reasons. And one of them is often the children. And people have the debate internally. Is it the right time? Is it the wrong time? Is this the right age for the children to go through a transition like that? And we've talked about this before. Look, children are resilient. We've spoken to Elizabeth Cohen, the divorce doctor. We've spoken to other experts on the podcast. And look, kids are perceptive. They pick up on things easily. And a lot of times, not only are the parents happier, but the children are happier when there is a separation because children can feel the happiness that their parents have individually. And a lot of times, parents end up working together much better when they're separate than when they're living together. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think the to the point about the the stigma of divorce, I found that point, obviously, I found that point interesting as well, because the, you know, years ago, Gwyneth Paltrow famously divorced from her, I don't remember which celebrity she was married to at the time, but she called it a decoupling and she took some flack in the popular culture, sort of mocking her for creating this new word. But I kind of knew where she was coming from. You know, the word divorce, the sort of original definition of divorce is just to separate or disassociate. But let's face it, it's taken on uh, a synonym of almost failure, you know? And so that's why when I got divorced, I, I admit, uh, I, like many people, thought people were looking at me weird as I'm walking around because like, oh, too bad that didn't work out for you. <laughs> you know, you whiffed on that one. And um, in so many cases, it's just as you said in both parts of your answer there, there's happiness on the other side. And it's, it could quite possibly be better for everyone. And I imagine it usually is. Absolutely. And Dave, you mentioned word choice, whether it's divorce. I mean, I'll give you another one of those words, custody. When you talk mm. about kids, you know, I always tell people, try to use the words custody. You're talking about your kids, right? Use parenting time, use schedule, you know, use, use softer, more productive words that, you know, feel different and in return, people will experience not only the process, but so much about the divorce process, the divorce negotiation in a different and better light, just based on how each person may be viewing certain things. Yeah, exactly right. The custody has, a, has that certain ring to it. And you know, the other one is ex-husband, ex-wife. I find it hard to say that. And so because it, it has this sort of, you know, connotation like that's the villain. I have a friend who she, I'll give her a shout out, Karen Kahn from ifundwomen.com. She's a, a pioneer in, in that area. She tried to popularize the term husband for her former husband, <laughs> you know, just because she, cause she said, well, I, he's not an ex, sounds like he's the villain and he's not like he's the father of my kids. I, I still like him. Anyway, I don't know if that'll ever catch on, but. There you go. Yeah, I'm not so sure, but <laughs> you know, who knows? We, we, you know, it's uh, if it's going to catch on, it might catch on here. Yeah, on the podcast, we could create bumper stickers that say, "I don't mind my husband." You're probably not going <laughs> to say, "I love my husband," because you may not. But anyway, all right. Yes, that wraps up another edition of the docket. And again, use that email address Evan provided if you want to provide any suggestions for topics on the show. If you'd like to be a guest on the show. Our featured guests this week on the Shine Up podcast are Glenn Liebman, the managing partner in the business valuation, forensic accounting, and litigation consulting support firm of Klein, Liebman & Gresson, and leading 
Connecticut family law attorney and name partner, Peter Berniska. We are excited to talk with both Glenn and Peter about navigating the complex world of divorce during COVID, when businesses are involved and need to be valued, and the challenges presented to divorce attorneys like Peter and myself when trying to negotiate deals and settle cases, given the uncertainty. We are going to get into this and so much more. Glenn and Peter are nice enough to join us on the Shine On podcast. I appreciate the time. How are you both doing? Peter, starting with you. Doing great, Evan. Thank you so much for for having us on. It's certainly an honor to be on with two such great minds like Glenn and yourself. I'm lucky you guys haven't handed me a box of crayons and asked me to go color in the corner. So pleasure to be here doing very well and hope you both are as well. Peter, we just started, by the way, so don't don't say we're not going to do that. Again, all bets are off. Anything can happen. I'm well aware. Glenn, how are you? I'm good. Peter's the PT Barnum of our crew here today, so he'll be uh, keeping everyone entertained. I'm doing great, Evan. It's been quite uh, a year, obviously, for all of us, but good to be here. Everyone's good, safe, and healthy, and hard to believe. The three of us, just one year ago today, were sitting in Madison Square Garden at a Ranger game, huh? Absolutely. Look, as we record this episode on March 5th, and I think back almost one year ago, Glenn, you're right. The three of us were sitting center ice, 10 rows up at Madison Square Garden in New York City at the Ranger game. And we were talking all things sports, life, what's happening in our cases. And as I think back to that time, if my memory serves me right, I know I was talking about a case of mine, a three-year divorce, a high conflict, a high net worth case involving a business. I represented the wife of a prominent business owner And we had come to terms on settlement, I think it was about 45 minutes before the Ranger game was about to start. And I remember it because I didn't know if I was going to make the game as we were negotiating this deal all day. And in that case, the terms were agreed to in principle. The next step was to get an agreement drafted and signed. And we had trials scheduled for the end of March 2020. And then came COVID and everything shut down. Everything changed including the outcome of my case. And I know from my conversations with each of you and and, and from my own practice and my clients, where I deal with high net worth divorces and businesses, this was a common theme. Businesses change, finances, and people's lives and jobs were in a total state of flux. And before we get into the world of business evaluations and divorce, look, I would do absolutely anything to be back with both of you, Madison Square Garden, sitting center ice. And I'm sure you both would agree. Definitely. Uh, the times have <clears throat> changed dramatically and quickly. I, I think the the interesting thing and, and most difficult thing about what has gone on is that it was so sudden, right? Being the elder statesman here of the three of us, I've been around for a long time doing this. We've been through the dot-com bubble, 9-11, the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008, the mortgage industry collapsing, real estate collapsing, everywhere and back. But this was completely different because it was just so sudden and so severe that it it effectively shut down the economy, right? It shut down the economy and it shut down people's lives, the way that they were doing things, mad rushes to get toilet paper and you know, it's just the essentials. People were just so scared and paralyzed that forget about divorces when you're just trying to figure out, 
are, are we going to be safe? I, I think that became of paramount importance more than divorces for quite a bit of time, two to three months. And, and Glenn, you make such a great point. And, and Peter, I want to ask you, because I'm sure in your practice, you had cases similar to the one that I just mentioned. What did you see in your practice going back to March and April of 2020? Cases that were about to settle, businesses were involved, and then because of COVID, those cases could not settle. What did you see in your practice? I mean, perhaps it was just sort of where the timing fell. Everything shut down. Cases that could cooperatively move forward or, or were at the stage of being more or less wrapped up by cooperative involvement of the lawyers and the parties did. But all cases where the carrot and the stick of having a court date set to either go to court and have it out or settle in advance thereof, that leverage was absolutely completely removed. I think family law litigation is very unlike many other kinds of litigation in certain aspects. And again, caveat that this is all I've done for my career. So perhaps I'm speaking out of turn, but it would seem that in family law cases, especially one party or the other always benefits from delay, always benefits from status quo. It's not a situation always where both parties want or need to get to the end immediately or as fast as possible for any number of reasons, whether it's parenting or financial or a combination of both. There's always one party who prefers things as they are. Maybe it's because they control all the finances and all the money, or they have more dominion over the children than does their outspouse. But there's always one person who wants to move and one person who maybe doesn't. And when the for the period of time when the leverage of court was effectively removed, things started to stagnate and stagnate in a in a, a not helpful fashion. And aside from the cooperation of lawyers and parties, if something wasn't going to move, it wasn't going to move. And I think that was the case where cases were going through negotiations, valuations, or just parenting issues. And that was really something. It used to be you, you got to an impasse, you'd file a motion, you'd be in court dealing with it, usually working it out within two to three weeks. All of a sudden, you're telling clients there's no end necessarily in sight, and I cannot predict when we can move this issue by force, if not by agreement. Peter, you're a divorce attorney in Connecticut. I practice as a divorce attorney in New York, but I'm guessing our advice was the same. I mean, when, when the pandemic hit, clients were calling, courts were shut down. I mean, it, it was very difficult to give clients answers as to what was going to happen with their cases. I mean, cases were adjourned by the court system indefinitely. We didn't know if this was going to be a week, two weeks, or a month. And here we are one year later, and all my court appearances are virtual. I'm assuming the same is for you as well, Peter. Yes, absolutely. The, the exception in Connecticut for, for family law is what they call priority one matter. So if it's a restraining order or an emergency motion that's filed ex parte, which for those non-legal folks listening means you, you file something on the papers, the judge has to make an emergency temporary decision on an emergency issue just on the papers, and then it's set down in short return for a pretty quick hearing. Other than those items, we are on the, on, on the Microsoft Teams exclusively. Since the pandemic started, I have only been physically in court just a handful of times on matters like that. Otherwise, it's all virtual. Glenn, I want to turn to you because you're an expert. You value businesses all the time. 
And if there was a business evaluation that took place before COVID and there was a value put on it and then COVID came and I call you as a divorce attorney and I say, Glenn, in early 2020, this was the value. And a few months later, that business either shut down temporarily, who knows what was going to happen, but income decreased. What advice, what considerations, what are you telling me in your position as an expert, as a business evaluator, for how I should look at that value that was determined pre-COVID? Right. Well, it's a great question. You know, in a divorce setting, and particularly if you're in a litigation setting, the business valuation is just one asset in the entire financial marital estate that's going to be divided. Now, at the end of the day, and you guys both see this in your practices, there's so many emotions wrapped up in it for a variety of reasons. But at the end of the day, when it comes to the business being split up and divided, the real estate, the bank accounts, the pension accounts, et cetera, it's just a business deal, right? So a business deal is basically a negotiation among two parties, okay? So with regards to me advising lawyers, and I'm really more involved with the lawyers, as you both know, working with both of you, than the clients. Obviously, I have to deal with the clients to value the business. But in, in guiding the attorneys, it really depends on who you're working for, right? Because at the end of the day, somebody's going to get a better deal likely than the other, okay? Or they're both going to feel like they didn't get a good deal. And oftentimes, those are the best deals. So if you're working for the business owner spouse, right, which I had many discussions with people, the business in most instances, unless you were a hand sanitizer distributor or a a supermarket owner or something like that where you were benefiting from COVID. But 90% of businesses I would say that I was seeing were dramatically impacted, okay? So the value is going to be down, right? Because- the value of a business, we deal with a term called fair market value, and a business is valued as though, what would somebody pay for it if they were going to buy it? Now, usually businesses are valued based on what I could expect to earn in the future from that business. That's what I'm going to look at. What income, what earnings am I going to get out of this business after I buy it? When COVID hit, who knew? So I had a lot of attorneys and clients who who own businesses and the attorneys who represented them wanting to update the valuation. Okay. And surely those values were going to be less. Now on the flip side, if you represented the non-business owner spouse, you were in a wait and hold pattern, right? Let's look at it this way. If particularly for long-term marriages, 20, 30 years, where you were partners side by side with your spouse when they built the business and the business now was off 50, 80%, what impetus would you have to settle if Glenn Liebman comes along and says the business was worth 10 million three months ago, and now because of COVID, it could be worth 75% less? Glenn, that's such a great point. And look, you're one of the best in the business. And I want to ask you when those conversations took place with attorneys, was also included in that discussion, I'm assuming attorneys would say, and you would give some thought to, because we didn't know how long this was going to last and was the business going to be back up and running in two months, six months, and obviously it depends on the specific business. But if somebody said to you, if I said to you, Glenn, as a divorce attorney, how would you project this going forward 
because of the uncertainty with respect to the business. What would you say? I, I would say, and I did say to people, that this is, I'm in the business almost 25 years. This is the most challenging time of my career because uh, every case that I'm involved in looks at a business and, and how it was doing and then making an estimate of, of what the future is going to be. I'm the proverbial guy who's supposed to have the crystal ball and to be able to tell people the business was doing X and it's going to do you know X plus whatever going forward. And that's what the value is based on. So in an uncertain time, and we're talking, you know, late March through late June into July, I would say, when the economy was shut down, there was really no way for me, even with my experience, to credibly and in a manner that would be helpful to tell people what the future of the business was going to look like. Glenn, I'm, I'm going to stay with you because I think you make such a great point. A year later, in March 2021, is it different for you as an expert? Is it a little bit easier for you to look into that crystal ball that you know you have and and predict going forward because we're inching closer, hopefully to the other side of it. I still think we're far away from businesses, you know, being fully back up and running. And, and again, who knows how long that will take? But is it easier and different now for you in 2021? Well, yeah, certainly things have stabilized. I, I will say that it's. It sort of mirrors the feeling that just all of us, the general public, had in terms of how you felt those late days of March and early April. Remember those gray? It, I remember it because I used to take walks every morning. and They were gray, and it was just that time of year. And you were living in so much fear, right? People, particularly where we're from in New York and in the Northeast, were dying. There were the numbers were big and it, it was a mortality rate that was scary, even to younger people. So you were living in a fear and you didn't know what the future was going to be. Fast forward just for all of us now, none of us certainly want to get COVID, but I don't think we have that same level of fear that we're going to die. I mean, I think that's the greatest fear that just about all of us have. Again, there's the risk. So you know, you don't want to get it. So same thing parallels with businesses. There was so much fear back then and there was so much unknown. There's less unknown right now. We have a history now. So what I'm doing with most businesses, when I look at them, there's a history of how did you trudge through this, these last 12 months? And some businesses have come back mostly almost the same. Some have come back in varying degrees. So things have sort of stabilized and allowed me to do my job in a way that I am a little more comfortable giving people better advice than let's say I could have given them in mid April of 2020. And it's, it's a great point. And, you know, we're talking about businesses and industries and let's shift gears and talk about, you know, the legal industry for a moment. And Peter, I want to ask you, you mentioned in Connecticut, almost all appearances are virtual with the exceptions that, you know, you mentioned in New York, every appearance that I have is 100% virtual, conferences, trials. How are you experiencing, Peter, the virtual proceedings? What do you like about it? 
What do you miss about being in a courtroom? Well, I mean, certainly the court system in the state has done the best job possible in getting justice and court systems back up and rolling as effectively as possible while keeping everybody safe. So certainly my hat is off to them and their efforts. It's it's a learning process. It you know it it was is something that has to evolve as it goes. And it's been a learning experience for all of us, whether it's the, the attorneys, the clients, our staff, the, the, the hardworking judges, clerks and superior court staff to figure out how to make this whole system work. And now we are having, you know, everything from depositions to status conferences to trials, hearings, court appearances virtually. And, you know, I think it is effective. Judges can hear the evidence. Exhibits get exchanged in advance with everybody and entered. The system does work. I do certainly miss being in a courtroom. I think everyone, Evan, who does what what you and I and, and Glenn does, there's an element to it. You wouldn't be doing it if you didn't like when you have to go into a courtroom. Clearly, you want to keep your clients out and settle whenever possible. But in our business, there's an element of that whole game day mentality. Okay, we couldn't settle it. We have to go try it. And I think being live in a courtroom is an experience that you just cannot achieve on the video. I mean, for clients too, it used to be if you'd file a motion, it would come up on what we call short calendar within two or three weeks. And everyone would have to go down to court and wait, wait their turn, try to settle it have to discuss it in advance to try to settle it if they could. And it was a way to put a bookend on an issue. If we don't work it out, we're going to have to go down and have a hearing and the lawyers are going to prepare and we're going to, and the clients will have to take days off of work and get babysitters and come into court. And it was a real lever for moving business. Now, even though the clients know, okay, well, I have to log into this video interface and put on a nice shirt. There is not the same I guess, pomp and circumstance, if you will, of getting ready and going to court and the old adage of something settling on the courthouse steps. I think there's a lot to that. I think people sometimes don't focus on what they have to deal with until they have the courthouse floor under their feet and knowing they have to log on to a video just doesn't have the same gravamen. Peter, that's a fantastic point. I want to piggyback off that because you litigate in Connecticut you, you spend so much time in a courthouse before COVID. You know, I often say I spend more time in a courthouse than I do my own living room before COVID. And the truth is, I think you make a great point, which is cases, that experience of clients being in a courtroom, it would help settle a case. I mean, as you're waiting around and you can have a discussion, a conversation with your client, with opposing counsel, have a settlement meeting. You know, as you say, cases that were able to settle on the eve of trial in person, you know, spending time with the judge, the court attorneys going back and forth. I think virtual appearances are great. They're efficient. They're productive. But I also think by being in a courtroom and clients experiencing that, it does help settle a case. And I think that piece of it is missing. No, and I, I would absolutely agree. I mean, another small part of that is when you're sitting with your client anticipating your turn and you're in the courtroom seeing the judge to which you've been assigned handle other matters, your client gets an up-close and impersonal view of the judge who is going to be deciding the issue they're on today. And I, I can't tell you how many times cases have settled or issues have settled that were there in court on by virtue of the client seeing how 
well a judge manages their courtroom, how a judge is being no nonsense, not tolerating any, you know, sort of conduct, or perhaps there's a case teed up before yours that has similar issues or similar personalities, seeing how justice is administered to the other people in that public forum sometimes has a significant effect on all the people who are sitting there waiting their turn. And Glenn, I want to turn to you and ask you, as an expert, as someone who testifies all the time in person before COVID, what are your thoughts on testifying as an expert based on a report and being subject to cross-examination and questions from a judge in a virtual capacity? Yeah, that's a great question because I'm coming in from a different point of view than you guys. You guys have the total breadth of and totality of the case going on. And with clients, you know, Peter raised a great point, witnessing the judge for many times, right? It's their first time ever in a courtroom, right? They've never even been involved in a litigation. So other than seeing, you know, TV shows and movies, which really don't do it, you know, they almost dramatize and highlight, entertain you. It's, it's not oftentimes an entertaining experience because I've been there with the attorneys and with the clients. It's a different ballgame. So I'm going to answer that differently because <clears throat> once that's all taken out of the picture and it's boom, let's go, here's the trial, that's when I'm sitting there on the witness stand. Now, for me, I've testified over 50 times in my career, in, in, across my career. And yeah, there's something about being there walking up through up to the judge and making that right turn and sitting in that witness stand, getting sworn in, hands actually on the Bible, all that stuff. It's way different. You know, I'm in my living room or now back in my office. It's just a different experience. I will say, though, for presentation purposes, it works terrific from my point of view, because for the audience listening out there, whether you're a layperson or a professional, what what I issue is a written report on my how I came up with the valuation or the financial work that I've done. And I would present that in a direct testimony with everybody, okay, and the judge would hear it. Now, everyone's got their own hard copy of this. In this virtual world now and screen sharing on Zoom, I get we get to put that up on the screen. And now there's nowhere else to look. There's other than the screen for everybody that's involved. And that's going to be the judge, the law secretary, both attorneys, both clients. You just have nowhere to look but the screen. So I find that everyone is super focused on just my report. And I can point out, go to page three, go to exhibit four. And everyone's really intently focused on my report and what I'm presenting as opposed to being in a big courtroom where you could get distracted and somebody could be looking at one item on the page of my report and somebody on another. It just seems to be a much more targeted experience because I have testified a couple of times now in the virtual setting. So it's working quite well. I have to, I have to say, not to mention the travel time that I don't have to bear. <laughs> and, and also, the, the, frankly, for the, inter- for the clients not have to pay me to go back and forth between courts. Absolutely. And Glenn, I I would think, let me ask you, for all those reasons you just mentioned, the presentation, you know, the the cost, sitting around, waiting, do you see testifying virtually, do you see as a trend, whenever we're back to normal, at some point in person, 
do you see yourself testifying virtual? Is that a thing that to come out of the pandemic? I think so. I don't see why it can for a number of reasons. One, in terms of scheduling, it's going to make it a lot easier. You know, there's not a lot of experts relative to the proportion of cases, okay? So experts are busy, and, you know, travel time gets factored into it. If I have to travel to Connecticut, for example, from New York, you know, it's an hour both ways. And if my schedule is packed, I think it will help accelerate things. And again, for the presentation purposes, I I think it it works out quite well. What I do see is I think I will be back in a courtroom, but I think the mode of presenting is going to be different. Just like everything else here, you know, we're coming out of this pandemic. You asked me about businesses and, you know, is it easier to do now? I think the answer to that was it's a lot there's a lot less unknown now. I don't want to say easier, but there's a lot less unknown that allows me to confidently kind of do my work. But there's so many changes in technology, just like, you know, doing Zooms and so forth, that I think if I'm back in a courtroom, I think my reports now, I could see courtrooms having a big screen and my report being put up there and information being presented and delivered in a digital mode versus paper. I think paper, you know, if you're in the paper industry and I'm valuing your business and you're listening out there, <laughs> prospects probably may not be too good for you because I think paper is does not have a great future in, in, in my profession and what I do and in the courtroom. And Glenn, reading between the lines. I'll, I'll ask you a question, Evan. Sure. How about you? Do you see yourself lugging you know, bankers boxes of documents and marking exhibits, physically marking exhibits, you know, I'll ask you, am I allowed to on this podcast? Of course, Glenn, this this is Glenn. We we are on the shine on podcast. There are no rules. You can ask me anything you want, but here's what I'll tell you. Look, my neck has never felt better. My back has never felt better because you know, when I prep for trial and when I'm going to court, you're right. you're, You're lugging boxes and documents and suitcases of, of trial notebooks down to a courthouse. And I got to tell you, there's something efficient or something great about doing this virtually from a presentation standpoint. But look, I miss being in a courtroom for all the reasons that Peter, you know, and I said from a divorce attorney's perspective, I think it helps settle a case. I think we'll be back in a courtroom, but I think the virtual appearances will be here to stay because not every, you don't need to go to court for every single appearance. You don't need to go to court for a five-minute court conference, you know, or a 20-minute status conference to update a judge on whether both sides have, you know, submitted business documents to the business evaluator. You don't have to go to court for that and spend three hours to give an update. But for the longer conferences, for the trials, I'm excited to be back in a courtroom. I embrace and I love what the virtual court appearances bring. And I think it's going to be a great blend as we go forward. And Peter, I want to turn to you because, you know, we we have spent a lot of time having conversations as, you know, from the New York perspective as a divorce attorney in New York and as a divorce attorney in Connecticut and people who litigate and try cases. When you have someone like Glenn on the stand in person, over Microsoft Teams, over Zoom, testifying virtually, give us some tips on cross-examining an expert such as Glenn. What do you look for? How do you do it? 
Well, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, and, and, and one thing I'll add is one of the great things about in-person court appearances is you don't get kicked off the Zoom because your Wi-Fi craps out like just happened to me two minutes ago. So there's n- <laughs> no possibility. But no, so, so I mean, in, in cross-examining any expert, my sort of uh, philosophy on that that I is always proved well is that you're never going to be more of an expert than the expert. I don't care how smart, how good a lawyer you are, how many years you've been doing it. The expert is always going to be more of an expert than you are. So you have to accept that. And then you have to try to attack. And sometimes that's by virtue of you having your own expert who can write you a roadmap or assist you. But you have to, att- you have to first identify and then spend your time attacking all of the, you know, substantive decisions the expert had to make in getting to their conclusion by way of oversimplified examples. There's no point arguing with Glenn about what the financial aspects in terms of cash on hand or, you know, excess working capital or what the income rates were for the last several years. The facts are the facts. It's when the expert has to then apply the expertise. What are we going to use as a discount rate? What data did they use or not use in terms of assessing other transactions in the market? Why is this capital rate or this cap rate more applicable than that rate where you're always going to be able to come up with, especially if you have your own expert on your side, with um, a way to sort of chew away at those decisions the expert had to make in getting to their conclusion. And there's always a, well, why didn't you do this? Or could you have looked at it that way? And why didn't you look at it that way? Again, this is a very big picture perspective, the facts of each specific uh, expert report unto itself. But even with something like a real estate appraisal, why did you pick this comp versus that comp? You can get down into the nitty gritty of the choices the expert made that got them from the facts to their opinion and at least cast enough doubt in the eyes of the court that maybe, you know, the number that's being spit out is subject to, you know, some reasonable variance or, or at best that the expert did not do their homework as well as they should. Now with Glenn, he's always done his homework. He's always looked into everything. So it's, you're not going to turn night into day, but you can, he's coming up with a number you can turn it into a range and maybe a lower range if you're on the other, you know, or a higher range, depending on what side of it you're on. So that's sort of my broad strokes philosophy on how to go after an expert opinion. And Glenn, let me ask you, what's the biggest mistake you see attorneys make when trying to cross-examine a witness, an expert witness, such as yourself? A lot of what Peter said, trying to challenge me on, points that I, you know, know a lot more about than, than the attorney does and the judge does points that are really not debatable points that are practical too. Okay. Just to let the audience know too, the valuation of a privately held business is what we're talking about here. Okay. So it's very different. If we want to know what the value of Google is right now, or Apple, or Disney, or whatever publicly traded company. We could all go on the internet now, Yahoo Finance or whatever, and we will all pull up the same price, and there's no debate. It's $3,200 a share, Amazon. Hope we all bought Amazon two years ago. I I know I didn't. I'm not even that smart. I value companies, and I don't have Amazon in my (laughs) Well, now, now, now you do. 
Yeah. So having said um, that, I'm going to jump off for two minutes and be right back once I bought some Amazon. Excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) So we do everything here in the Shine Up podcast. We have experts like Glenn, (laughs) Connecticut divorce attorneys like Peter, and we give you the, you know, the the stocks to buy here on on the podcast. Yeah, we make no representations about the stock going up and down, though. But anyway, privately held companies, there's no quoted price that we can all agree on. So what we're talking about here is assumptions are made. There's a lot of mechanics. I like to say there's a lot of science and a bit of art in valuing a privately held company. And by the art, I mean there are different assumptions that you have to assume. So when Peter's talking about cross-examining me, it's finding those things that in my valuation and in my report that I had to make a judgment call on and seeing if I or another expert took a big leap that doesn't make sense. Okay. So I, in addition to valuing companies, as you guys know, and I've worked with both of you, I do a lot of litigation consulting. So you'll bring me in to review somebody else's report on the other side and tell you, it looks okay. Or, you know, there's holes and there's, you know, one, two, three, four, five of them. And these are the ones that you could attack. And here's the magnitude of them. And that's what you go after. But when attorneys try to debate me on generally factual points or points where I've just made logical assumptions, I I think is where they they fall short. You want to look for any inconsistencies, for example, in my report or when an expert does a report. And that's where I try to consult with you guys to help you prep to cross-examine another expert. And Glenn, you do it all. You do it all so well, whether it's, you know, testifying in court, if you're a neutral court-appointed expert, if you provide litigation support, you also do lifestyle analysis as well. And that's going to be, you know, a topic for another podcast, what's happening, because people's expenses are down. Everyone's lifestyle has changed during COVID. And we'll save that for another day. But I want to go back to something you said, because when attorneys are going back and forth with you and challenging you on minutia or things that don't matter, not only is it a losing battle, but in your experience, you're also losing the judge because the judge is becoming increasingly frustrated that the attorney can't focus on what's important and what's not. Do you find that, Glenn? I do. And some of what I do is tied up in in legal precedent, right? So there's case law that talks about valuation and how the courts have looked at it. So, you know, I've had cases, one's coming to mind, where an attorney was trying to battle me on the legalities of that related to the business valuation that, you, you know, there's foundational case law that I discussed with the attorney that I was working for. And this other attorney had a different opinion that wasn't in accordance with case law. And, you know, he was tried 16 ways until Sunday to try to get the questions in objection, objection, the judge asked him to ask it a different way. He was trying to give him a little leeway, the judge. But at the end of the day, yeah, it irritated the judge a bit. And I'm happy to say that case, the decision came came down positively for myself, the attorney, and, and our client. And I think, yeah, you can lose the judge if you really start to battle a lawyer, too. Just to add to one more thing, too. The lawyers who try to get theatrical, and this is for the lay people who are listening to this, the stuff you see... Uh, and Peter could probably expand on too because I've seen him in the courtroom and he's very professional. But the, the people, the guys and gals who try to like put on these theatrics in the courtroom, you know, the Johnny Cochran kind of stuff, the, the judges don't like that. They don't buy that. This is not, this is the real world. This is not, 
you know, Netflix or anything where you score points. So the attorneys that do that, I, I think, are making a big mistake. Hey, Glenn, you, you make a really great point. And as we wind down here on the Shine Up podcast, I, I, I want to shift gears for a moment and ask you both, Peter, starting with you, I know all three of us are big sports fans and Glenn, you're a Minnesota Vikings football fan and Peter, you have your teams and don't say that people are going to lose respect for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after this past year, I mean, it was what a disappointing year for the Vikings and you know, it it was not a good year for them. And Peter, you have your teams and, you know, Connecticut and hockey and, and, you know, Boston and all those teams that you root for. But I read an article the other day and I want to ask you both of about it. We've gone to games together. We talk sports, you know, cases. And basically the article said during the pandemic, ratings in all sports were down. That goes for the Super Bowl, regular season games, playoff matchups, not just in football, but baseball. And I don't know about both of you. For me, it's helped me get through the pandemic. I remember going back to last April 2020 when the last dance came out the phenomenal documentary with you know Michael Jordan and I was excited you know for baseball to come back and football a tradition of my family growing up was going to opening day at Yankee Stadium and opening day didn't happen in 2020 and so I want to ask both of you how even with the ratings down the statistics that show the numbers have declined what has been the impact for both of you when it comes to sports and it comes to helping you get through or having that outlet to help you get through the pandemic, Peter? Well, I mean, you know, looking back at the past year, it was very sadly the year that wasn't, you know, when everything got blown out in March, I was about to start, you know, coaching my seven-year-old son's little league team, which didn't happen. We're hoping, you know, that the email just came around that it's time for sign up for, for this year. And we're absolutely, you know, we're going forward. There is no opening day. You know, I, I'm an avid Yankee fan my whole life. And I take particular pride in that I was a fan in the 80s when you'd see Don Mattingly hit home runs into an empty upper deck and it wouldn't matter. I was a fan then, not only when they got good. But, but by uh, the way, how great were those days? Don Mattingly <laughs> and that sweet lefty stroke and that short right, you know, right, you know, right field porch at Yankee Stadium. Those are great days. Absolutely. And, you know, and I remember them fondly and it wasn't there this year. And, you know, admittedly, I tried to put on the TV and watch the the games. And I was actually struck and astonished by how much a difference it made in my experience, even watching on TV, not having the crowd there, not he- hearing everyone go nuts if someone throws the ball high and tight and the guy's backed off the plate and it's, oh, and, and it's the whole stadium all at once. Or when someone hits a home run or even a, makes a great play in the infield, it was it was like watching like watching you know a high school game, that the talent was there. It was in professional ballpark, but the experience of being live. I think, you know, talking about, we were talking about being in court virtually, we've been really robbed of the live and in living color experience in all aspects of our lives. And that includes sports. And I think, you know, watching, you know, the NFL and, and, and the super was probably the least impacted because they do such a good job on the TV of really, you don't notice too easily that the crowd is not there and they have the noise crowd noise piped in. But I, I think I'll feel like this pandemic is really behind us when I can take my family back to Yankee Stadium and see a game, fight our way in and out of the Bronx and the parking lots and all that and, and sit there without worrying about who's coughing. But that's just me. Glenn, what about you? 
Well, as you guys both know, for me, the big one of the bigger points as it relates to sports is college football. I have a senior, two girls, senior at Penn State, and I've been to that whiteout game, which is beyond any experience. I think they, you know, not, not being biased, this is completely objective, one of the better, if not the best college experience to go to a whiteout game. But my younger daughter just started at Ohio State this year, so I was looking forward to the whiteout game in late September of this past year was going to be Ohio State at Penn State. And my girls were going to get me a split jersey that was half red, half white, and so forth. And I was really pumped for that. The game was on TV, and it, you know, it didn't have that same – because flair, they show the aerial shot all the time that has the stadium completely white against the dark night sky. But look, at the end of the day, for me, I, I agree with you, Evan. I was felt fortunate to be able to watch sports when there was that time when you're right, it's such a big part of our culture, entertainment. I'm just glad it helped me get through it a lot. It really did. And Glenn, it's a great point. And as a divorce attorney, you know, I know I, know I see it with a lot of my clients, you know, sports, it, 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 it binds people. It, it's a way for people, you know, in the family dynamics and relationships and whether it's parents or you know parents and their children it's a way for people to bond so you know it's something i see in my practice and i want to thank you both for coming on the shine on podcast it was absolutely fantastic you know glenn you know you're incredible at what you do as an expert and you know peter you know bringing that connecticut you know perspective as a leading connecticut divorce attorney glenn i want to ask you if, if, how could someone get in touch with you who's listening if there's questions about a business valuation and all the work that you do whether it's an attorney or another professional, how could someone reach out and get in touch with you? Well, thank you, Evan. The easiest way is just to go to our uh, firm website. The firm is Klein, Liebman, and Gresson, also known as KLG, which we're probably going to be rebranding. This fall, as we come out of COVID, is KLG. I'm the Liebman in that, and uh, the website is goklg.com, G-O-K-L-G. You can read all about our firm. There's a button to click professionals. There's a pretty old picture of me without my beard, my COVID beard <laughs> that I have going on there and, and my resume and all my qualifications and stuff. And, and, and happy for anybody to touch base that way. And Peter, what about yourself? Well, How do people get to, in touch? To, to, to find us, we're Schoonmaker George Colin Blomberg, Berniska and Welsh. And we're at uh, SGB Family Law dot com in in Greenwich, Connecticut, and now with an additional office in Westport, Connecticut, in Fairfield County. So that's how you found us, and it's uh, especially a pleasure to have been here today, Evan. Thank you so much for having both of us. Always great seeing you guys and spending time with you, if even virtually. And hopefully, we could be at a Yankee game in, in a couple of months when we're all hopefully vaccinated. That would be nice. Fingers that crossed, that would be fantastic. And Glenn, Peter, I want to thank you both for coming on the Shine Up Podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. Dave, another great show on the Shana podcast, episode nine, in the books, navigating the complex world of divorce when businesses are involved is never an easy task. Doing it during a pandemic, like so many things right now, is so difficult and challenging because of the unknown that exists with companies and businesses, not only today, but going forward. We heard from two incredible experts, Glenn Liebman and Peter Berniska, and thank you for listening to the Shine Up podcast to the listeners on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Thank you for listening. Producer, David Yaz, thank you as always. All the listeners can follow me 
on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse, and send in any comments, questions, or notes to the Shine Up Podcast email, shineuppodcast at gmail.com. I'm Evan Shine, and we'll talk to you again real soon. <laughs>